We're kicking off the uh, 2023. This is our first Meet the Author of the Year. And who do we have with us today, Gary? Well, Tamara, I'm really happy and pleased that we have Alan Keller uh, with us today. Hi, Alan. Uh, Hello. And Alan's going to talk about his book, Mental, M-E-N, Mental Health, It's Time to Talk. So let's get right into the book and explore Alan, what, what made you decide to write this book? Yeah, and good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. The, the book, Gary, it was, it was bigger than me. It's always been bigger than me. You know, here's, here's how it honestly unfolded. I was shoveling snow in my driveway, and it honestly felt like something just smoked me over the head, like a shovel. And it was, this, it was really bizarre because, I, you know, I, I all of a sudden – saw the whole book in its entirety and I saw the skeleton the outline and I threw my shovel in the snow and I ran inside and I started to write the outline of the book and I'm not a vision kind of guy but I kid you not that night I had this dream vision there's this long line of people and they're all handing me this piece of paper I was like well what is this and all of a sudden I realized oh it's their story and then I realized that it was all men in the line. And then it came together and I was like, oh, this is supposed to be a book for men and mental health. And over the next few weeks, it was unbelievable how many men reached out. And I reached out to a few as well. But the book took on a life of its own. And I think it was nine months later, Gary, the book was published. And, and, and so it's like the short and sweet is that I spent most of my life trying to harm or kill myself. And I, I had such a hard time figuring out why. Like, why, why do I hate self so much? There is truly no reason why I should still be alive after the life that I've led. Then I feel like I'm here to carry a message. And one of the ways to do that is through books. There's nothing more powerful, or I would argue nothing as sacred as someone's story. And for that reason, I felt like the best way to write this book was through story. And as we know, men are struggling in a, a profound way. I continue to meet so many men who carry that emotional baggage with them. And the problem is when it doesn't see the light of day, you know, it just gets darker and darker. So it was important for me to put a face and a voice to it and to get other men to share their story so that they could help pave the way for others. Very, very interested. Well, who should be reading your book? <laughs> I mean, anyone who has a vested interest in learning about mental health. But when, when this book first launched, we knew that it would be women who would buy it more than men. And that has always been the case. And it's often something that ends up being gifted to men because that way men can read it in their own time and in their own way and the way that the the book is structured is it's all by different topics so you know you have one chapter specific to mental illness one on suicide one on trauma one on substance use and i think for that reason a lot of people will pick up the book and leaf through it and often only read what resonates for them it's not a book that you necessarily have to read front to back right right okay so when I read the book there, I was getting a feeling that, of course, there's the patient who would maybe take the book on with the courage to read the book. 
And there's also about advocates as well. So I think what we want to do today is explore patients and advocates, and particularly because we have a lot of safety professionals and who are interested in the how aspects, how do we make this happen? We'll spend, a, we'll spend some time, definitely in the latter half, talking about how we as advocates can kind of support the work that you're, you're doing. And as you say, your, your book is aimed directly at men. So what is the stigma that men face? Yeah, that's a rich history, isn't it, Gary? Yeah. When I was a kid, when I was a young boy growing up, it was not modeled for me that it was okay to be vulnerable, to reach out for help, to shed a tear. There are these ideas that as men, we should be able to be strong enough to solve our own problems. And we often have this idea of fixing things, right? And, and it's very frustrating then when we're in a bind or we're struggling and we can't fix ourselves, And so I think that it's fighting all of those old scripts and realizing that they do not serve us anymore. And it is one heck of a journey, a process trying to rewrite that. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of statistics that are showing um, that both men and women suffer from mental illness equally. But we see men respond differently. Yeah. Yes. I mean, men respond differently. The short and sweet is we don't want to talk about it. Yeah. It's easier to suppress things. Um, but the problem is, of course, then that's why we're seeing such high rates, including suicide, where as mm -hmm. men, you know, we're dying at a suicide rate that is three to four times greater than women. But you know, Gary, to speak about what we're up against, this is generational, right? It goes back. And here's a prime example where I was speaking at a community event and I was talking about, okay, let's, let's break some of these generational patterns. And I would encourage them to be vulnerable, to take a risk, to use their voice in times of need. That was kind of the message. After that event, there's a man who's, he's probably around I don't know, 65. And he comes up to me at the front and he shakes my hand. But this wasn't the kind of handshake that was like, well done, young man. This was like, mm, I'm going to get a bit of a lecture here. And here's what he says to me. He said, you know, you're up there telling us to be vulnerable. Let me tell you what happened to me. And so he says that when he was struggling with his mental health as a young man, he did try to confide his challenges with his dad. And what does his dad say? Uh, what are you telling me for? You're the one with the problem, fix it. So now, of course, for him, he's like, damn, I, I tried to let my wall down. I tried to let someone in and this is what I get. So of course he's going to retreat, suppress his emotions once again. But then that built over time and he realized he's gonna try again, be vulnerable. And he does so with a priest. Well, what happens? He gets the exact same response. What are you telling me for? You know, just fix it. So the point was this. He's pissed off at me and for good reason, because in his experiences, he says, you know, it never worked. So I'm at a place now where I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to get hurt again. Don't stand here telling me that that's the answer. Wow. Wow. Okay. Let me just ask anybody in the audience, if, have, you, have you shared these sort of experiences that Alan has? I know I've had those when I was young, 
particularly uh, because of my generation being Chinese Canadian growing up, you as a child, you were you weren't allowed to speak until you're asked. You, you know, so we all had maybe that's the family hierarchy. So you learn how to be quiet. I remember in school, uh, elementary school, I always liked to ask questions. That's my curiosity coming up. And then you'd always get your grade in a, in, in a particular subject, and then you would get your citizenship. I would always get an N or a U. Uh, my mother would always wonder, what's wrong? How come he doesn't get a G for good? And when, when she went talk to teacher, it's because Gary disrupts the class. He asks too many questions. He's not mm -hmm. like Bill who just sits there and says nothing. So that's what was grounded to me growing up. So curious, fellas, anybody out there? Like to open up and share? Peter, go ahead. Oh, can, you, can you hear me? Oh yeah, I can hear you well. Oh, maybe I didn't have my uh, thing up. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny, so uh, I typed in there, it's cultural too, as for you being Chinese, um, you know, I grew up, I'm Greek, and you know, so, you know, the, the men rule the roost, you know, like they kind of do everything. So it's kind of a, uh, it's been tough over time. And then uh, it's easy for me to talk about this now. So about four or five years ago, I lost my wife. And, uh, you know, I, a lot of things were kind of closing in on me. And uh, I went and got some help. And, you know, and then uh, actually after having that chat, uh, you know, uh, helped quite a bit, actually, kind of, uh, you know, uh, calms your thought process and everything else. And, you know, it's not like it's uh, yeah, you against the world and all that stuff, right? So uh, to me, it was been quite interesting, but I'm just going to throw this one in quickly so I don't take up everybody's time. But uh, we, uh, to show you how this evolved from me to other guys. So I go on a golf trip every year. There's four of us. So obviously after you're, you know, you go for three days. So at nighttime, you know, there's a lot of chatting going on because of other things and all that stuff. Uh, so, but we get into the conversations, right? So this one night, it was, uh, it was quite hilarious. So we're, you know, we're talking late at night and all that stuff. And I said, yeah, I went and got help and all that stuff. And the three heads, the other three guys, their heads jerked around so quick <laughs> to look at me and go like, uh, like what? And then, and these guys have known me for a long time, right? So, I mean, I've been my friends for, you know, 50 years, 60 years. And the one guy was, uh, you know, the one good friend of mine. I've known him for a long, long time. He just said, I could tell because I've known him for a long time by his mannerisms. He was going like, really? And I suspect he hasn't, uh, I haven't talked to him about, but I, I, I wouldn't be shocked that he hasn't gone and got, uh, uh, had to talk, to, he talked to somebody, right, to kind of, you know, and anybody that knows me too, going like, you know, when I said something like that, they kind of just, well, their jaw was like, you know, they're almost tripping over their jaw, right? So it was kind of a, it was an interesting uh, wow. uh, view at that time. So, yeah. Anyhow, well, thanks for sharing soul. that. Wow, great. Robert, you got your hand up. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Open your mic up. Can you do that? There you go. There, you go. Okay. there we go. Okay. First, uh, it's great to see Alan again. And uh, it, uh, it, 20 minutes before the top of the hour uh, for your event, uh, Tanya Hewitt let me know that you were here doing your event today. So, Alan, um, how many men are here today that I can see? I can see uh, at least, uh, what, 
uh, six, maybe seven men. So uh, regardless of our occupations of each of these men, uh, men do talk about mental health, Alan. We actually do. We actually do. So, uh, and Alan is proof of it, right? He's got a book out there. Um, the, uh, the stigma, in my opinion, is too many men talk about the fact that men don't talk about mental health. That's a stigma in itself. So we got to stop that shit, right? Because we do. We do talk about mental health. And thank you, Tamara, for saying not in your head yes. That's awesome. And men write books about it. <laughs> men write books about it. So uh, we need to stop talking about the fact that we don't talk about it because we do. It might not be uh, as uh, in your face and visible um, as uh, 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 maybe how women talk about their things, their stuff, but we're out there doing it. And we've already started to be on the trail and on the path and we're out of the starting gates. So when we say we don't talk about it, it suggests that we're still in the locker room, wait, or still in the dressing room, waiting to be called out on stage when the time is right. But we're already on stage. We're already on the track, Alan. So, Good to hear that, Robert. Good to yeah. hear that. Thank you. So Abby, you got, no, oh, Abby, you got your hand up here. I just need, let me finish with all. Oh, oh sorry. Sorry, I, I want to honor and, and what you're doing and just uh, invite you to change the message. To talk about that we are talking about it and that's why you wrote the book to add even more value to this awesome community of men who are standing up who are stepping up and stepping out uh to talk about the things that we want to talk about so it's a different message when we uh get hung up on we don't talk about it that's why i'm here versus we're already doing it and we're just let's keep doing more of it and that's my rant. Okay, thank you for that. Abby, go ahead. Uh, thank you for the uh, platform. Thank you, uh, Alan, for writing the book. Uh, what uh, my own experience is uh, stem from my, the passing of my own uh, twin boy. Boys. Uh, can can we turn up your volume a bit? I think I, I'm having difficulty. I'm not sure anybody else's, but a little higher volume. Oh, can you go the other way? I think we're I think we've lost you now here. Yeah, me now. Hello. There you go. Where to go? Yeah, you're good. Loud and clear. Go ahead. Um, okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. You're good. You're good. Okay. Uh, sorry, about, I was using headset. I thought I could uh, make it a lot better. But uh, I said uh, my own uh, mental health or uh, issues around men uh, started uh, with my uh, twin boy. Uh, we lost one of them. Mm. Uh, at age four, they were diagnosed with uh, um, hearing impairment. And uh, while doing the investigation, one of them was uh, noted to have brain cancer or okay. brain uh, cancer, yes. And then he went through all the treatments 
Uh, ten, almost 10 years later, he had um, back pain and uh, while investigating, that turned out to be a back uh, bone cancer. And uh, he was in, uh, um, he, he was sick for about 18 months and through that time, uh, it was really difficult for everyone in the family, particularly his twin brother. Uh, so uh, what I did after his passing was to set up a session or um, a kind of platform for men to talk. Uh, I call it Macho Men. I did it for some time and uh, for sure there was a little bit of reception. And uh, so uh, and I, I tried, decided to start researching and see that uh, a lot of uh, effort is going into that, particularly when uh, when the COVID uh, came in and you can see the, uh, I mean, increase in mental health. Uh, but of course, uh, what I found out in my own research was that like uh, Alan mentioned, it was a societal norm for men to be macho. You right. can't cry, you don't cry, you are right. just above everything. But I found out that men cry too. Yeah. Men do cry. <laughs> so. At the end of the day, uh, I mean, um, the uh, the impact of his passing really uh, went uh, it deep down to so many things in the family and uh, and as such, I mean, such a great book will speak to men that seemingly feel from societal pressure that men don't cry, men don't feel, men don't. The fact is, we are flesh and blood, and we cry. We have feelings. And as such, I believe the book will be helpful for those kind of men that thought uh, maybe we should not be crying for issues that affect our emotions. So thank you, Alan, for writing the book. Good stuff. I see in the chat panel, there's a few words about culture. So just, um, just I just wanna track the time, keep it going here. Well, we know what culture means. It's things that kind of trickle down through the generations. And Abby, I think you've covered quite a few of those things that. Uh, we all feeling has been. And now we've got this term called toxic masculinity that, that you know we can talk about now. We're, we're really being aggressive. Um, and as you say, real men, not only don't quite, we don't meditate either, right? So that's that, all that sort of stuff here. So I wanna ask Alan then, let's look at the other side. What are the new lessons of healthy masculinity that are being taught today? Hmm. You know, I want to acknowledge, um, Pete, what you shared and Abby, you know, the vulnerability. I love that vulnerability is strength. And Robert, you're so spot on. Um, we have to be careful with how we phrase it and the language. And I love how you spun that and the approach. And I think that to your point, you know, there's, there's a delicate balance because there's still so many walls and barriers up for a lot of men. But perhaps the way that we can lower those walls is, is by just proving that a lot of men are talking about it and case in point look at how many men showed up today you know like we're exactly like you all said we're living proof and i think that to answer your question gary we are changing the narrative and the the thing that i've learned is that the next generation is always watching kids are always watching what we do and if we as men or we even as adults if we do not give ourselves permission to be vulnerable to reach out for help to maybe shed a tear then why the hell would they? So this is the action piece, right? And and I did an event recently with uh, a First Nation and we called it Creating Moxon Trails. 
And it was exactly for that reason, because let's let's pave the way so that the next generation can can see because the boys of today are training to be the men of tomorrow. And I think that we are understanding that silence is simply not the answer, that there has never been anything manly about suffering in silence. And as more and more men step up to the plate and share their story and lived experiences, it makes it easier for others because vulnerability allows us to have those. I, I would still say the, the two most powerful words in this world are me too, like connection, because I swore for so long I was the only one with these thoughts. It wasn't, it wasn't the case. Yeah, Robert, you matter. You matter. The problem is that we live in our heads for so long and we swear we're the only ones going through the challenge. And that's a hard place to be. But Peter, when you put yourself out there in front of your peers, it allows for some very powerful conversation. Risk leads to reward. Oh, I should have been a pastor or something, right? So I, th I think one of the things I'm seeing now, and I, I'm seeing that reflected in my, in my grandson, is that um, boys are being taught to feel, to cry, yeah. and reach out for help. So, I mean, there was, there's also, I think, the signs that asking for help, and, you know, that's why I'm interested in your story, Peter, is asking for help is not a sign of weakness, but to me, it's really a sign of strength. Right? And there's really, as you say, nothing manly about suffering in silence. You know, Gary, I'll just share this one experience because I'm the guy who's often called to schools after there's been a suicide. And it's hard. I was speaking at a, a school recently. There are about 600 high school students. And in the audience was the best friend of the guy who had died by suicide. And his name was Pedro. And after I do these talks, I always ask for a separate room where students can just meet with me and talk because more than anything, they just need to talk. And this is what struck me. So I lost my best friend, Justin Andres, to suicide. And the lessons that I learned are vast. But what struck me is this, that when I had that room waiting for students to come in, it was, it was, Pedro who walked in, you know, the, the, the best friend of the guy who died by suicide. And when he walked in, he shook my hand and then he sat down on the couch across from me and we both just cried. We just sat there and cried because you have two guys who both, lo who both lost their best friend to suicide. But my point is this, he is proof that we're moving the right way because he gave himself permission to be vulnerable. He walks into the room to meet with someone like me, gives himself permission to feel because he understands that feeling leads to healing. And then he talked about it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I am seeing that more and more. Sure. There's a handful that turn to drugs, alcohol to put a blanket over the pain, but more and more young people are embracing this notion that they have to talk. Good, Zephyr. Tamara, got your hand up? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that strikes strikes me, you know, when I'm I'm kind of looking over my work life, and and one of the biggest things is the judgment of other people. 
making you feel that you have to behave a certain way or feel a certain way or not feel a certain way. And that is a very powerful element that is not spoken about, that nobody else has the right to make you feel a certain way. We talk about freedom of speech, right? What about freedom of feeling? What's your thoughts on that, Alan? He's, that's interesting. You know, that's, a, I mean, you bring up lots of great points. I think at, at the end of the day, um, there's nothing more powerful than our voice. And it's trying to step into that power. And sometimes we have to, you know, just use our voice despite some of those repercussions. And I think in doing so, it helps pave the way of others. But what you're talking about is, is what's already been brought up. It's trying to change that culture that obviously exists. And a lot of people feel like, hey, this is great. You can tell me I can use my voice. But when I do, I feel like I'm not heard. And I meet with so many people who say, like, I feel like I'm screaming and nobody's listening. Yeah, that's so true, right? I see Peter and Edward's hands are up. Peter, you've already spoken, so let's give the floor to Edward here. Edward, you're on. Hi, good evening, everyone. Hi, Alan, how are you doing? Yeah, so um, what I'd like to share primarily will be something that I experienced myself growing up. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I lost my dad when I was in primary six, 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And then I was raised by my mother, a single mother throughout my school's journey till, I mean, I wasn't even affected till she died seven years ago. So she died at a time that I was capable of taking care of her. Then she dies. So when she died, relatives who practically left us to our feet when our dad died are the ones who start making demands on of you because now they feel Edward is somebody, he can afford certain things. So you hear they will call you, send us this, your nephew is this and that. Then I'm like, even the people who lived to bring me to where I am today are nowhere to benefit from the fruits of their labor. However, those who didn't contribute anything are the ones trying to get it off. I'm sure you can ask Abe about this. It's, a, it's an African thing, so he knows what he's saying. To the point that they can call you frequently, they don't even care whether you have it or you don't. They put so much pressure on you. To a, point, to a point that I felt like ended myself because I thought I had enough. Oh. I had enough of their trouble. I thought I had enough of their pressure and all of that. My high blood, my, my pressures in high blood pressure went up. I started having lots of issues. I, I started getting obese and all of that. So I, I, re, I resorted to the internet, trying to read more YouTube and all of that, getting to uh, mental health issues. And as a health and safety practitioner, then I realized that there's more I could do and there are so many resources that I could lay I could lay my hands to to help this. So then I realized that indeed it's in it is necessary to talk. Yeah. It is very important to talk. Yeah. Where I'm from, Ghana, mm -hmm. Africans, we don't talk about these things. Mm -hmm. You hardly hear people talk about this because they see a man who talks about this as a sign of weakness they wouldn't bring you to the table. And we like titles. So I'm a man, I'm a head of the house. I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. So we are not always able to speak about our fears. However, we sit back and soak the pressure and people die. I, can, I can't count the number of people I know who have died as a result of these pressures. 
that leads to depression and the like. So this topic couldn't have come at any better time than now. And I'm privileged that I've got a book, Mental Health, It's Time to Talk. Mm-hmm. Alan sent me one last year. I've been reading it. It's so profound. And I feel that you guys are doing a great job. We should continue this, especially to the developing world. So many people, so many people. These are places where we've got everything, all the resources we have, but the basic necessities of life, people lack them. So the issue of mental health down there, it's crazy. In fact, if you feel there's any problem here in the Western world, you, you've not seen nothing. It's worse wow. out there. Wow. But because people do not have people that they could expressly talk to and get these kind of opportunities. So I feel that it's an appeal. I've gone through my experience. I've gone over it. I'm fine now. I now advocate for people. I speak to people on the right choices to make and all of that. I feel that we have to add men. We have to come together like now, try to create a wider audience share these resources and help people. Those who are suffering in silence would be able to get uh, some meaning out of such discussions and it would help them with their decisions going forward. So thank you for the opportunity today. Well, thank you for that too, Edward, because you know some people go like, well, this is just a book on the Canadian prairies, but it's very clear that this is not just the Canadian prairies, but it is worldwide. So thank you for shedding some light on that. Uh, Peter, you got your hand up. Uh, yeah, I just just saw a little add-on for what Edward just said. Like, I think the weakness that, you know, we as men to talk, but again, it goes back to culture or the way we're growing up. I mean, that's the way they look. That's the way it's always been looked at. It's a standard view, as far as I'm concerned, you know, of what the expectation for a, a male was in any family setting or whatever. But, uh, you know, but to go just to go back a little bit, when I first went to get uh, to get help, when I walked in, uh, uh, the, the gentleman, you know, he's a little bit younger than I was, he wasn't the typical, I think when people say you go get help and, you know, he sits there, he's got his pipe and he's on a leather, you know, <laughs> leather thing and all stuff. He was like, he's younger than I was. And, you know, just a pretty cool guy. I, I was so at ease right off the hop with him, right? And then, you know, we went through, he's got a standard questions that he started probing and everything else. And, but I will say, and I'll, he said, he asked me, what are you doing here? And I said to him, well, I want to make sure that I'm not effed up, I said, because of all the stuff that happened to me. That's exactly what I said to him. He looked at me, okay. So I, know, I went through the, you know, session with him. And then at the end, he goes, he says, nothing wrong with you. He says, so he says, You've got all this stuff that's happened in your family, the way you've been brought up and yada, yada, yada. He says, so so now, you know, like I go back, I, I see him, well, he'd like me to go back all the time, but I go, you know, I go for a tune-up every six months or whatever, right? So kind of just to have a chat with him, eh? And But I mean, and, but again, going back to these, when you talk to my friends or I, I don't, I it's taken, like it's taken an enormous weight off my back. I'm not scared to say anything about it. I'm not scared to talk about it, you know, and I encourage other people. I says, you know, if you go, you need to go get it done. Go talk to somebody, you know, like talking to your family and friends. It's no good because they know you. They're only going to tell you the stories that you want to hear. Right. So you literally would have to, I'll just call it a third party. Right. So, uh, you know, that's my experience with it. And uh, I don't know if anybody else has, but you know, it, it helps 
anybody and everybody, right? So especially the guys, right? So all this stuff is good. It's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. So in the, in the book, um, Alan, you do talk about what a patient can do. And you guys have just shared some things you're doing. And Peter, you just did that really, really well. Is there anything that you want to add, Alan, from the book, what patients can do? Hmm. You know, to Abby, Edward, and Peter, and, and everyone else who's sharing, it's it, the, the, that's why I love this, uh, I don't know, format, if you will. I, I, there's some value when we talk and um, share our lived experiences, and there's so much more value when it comes from everyone else, and we, we build this community, and we realize, hey, yeah, what? Wow, we're not alone in this. And, you know, Edward, just to build on what you were saying, you talk about the loss and then to your point, there's so many resources available, but you are the most valuable resource, right? Each one of us is the resource and, and using our story and lived experiences is the game changer. And that's what I love. Everyone here has found their voice. I think that to some degree, a lot of us know exactly what it feels like to have lost it. And, and, and it's empowering and liberating and beautiful to hear that you've not only found it, but that you've started to create these groups and build on these conversations. And I think that that right there, it, again, it's, it's proof that we're moving the right way. And so Gary, when you talk about the patient or the person struggling, I think number one, it's that we have to get our power back. We have to find our voice. This tattoo, as I said before, I lost my best friend, my person, to suicide. And I don't usually share this, but, you know, he, he had left me a note. And that was really hard. Um, it was really hard to, to, to read and to process that loss. And the, the, I actually traced over those initials and I put it on my throat J.A., Justin Andres, because that right there, that is the, the biggest motivating factor for what I do. You know, he paid the ultimate price by losing his life because he didn't want to burden others with his problems. He had a hard time being vulnerable and letting people in. The Phoenix is all about rising up from the ashes. And, and Gary, I think that that's why I love what we're doing today. It's, it's coming together it's taking a lot of pain, but turning it into something that is very beautiful and powerful. When, when our pain can turn into purpose, what? Like what, what, what's greater or more powerful than that? Yeah, great. So here's what we're gonna do for the rest of the show here. Our focus on our Meet the Author show is that we look at the practical side of improving safety. And what we've learned now is that safety isn't just that physical side. It also includes psychological safety now, right? Mental illness and wellness. So we've even expanded our boundaries beyond that. So I know we have some people on here who are safety professionals. And I'm looking also at the chat about what can organizations do? So let's look at that. And how can a safety professional help a patient feel psychologically safe in an organization. I'm throwing that out to anybody. Alan, you got first dibs if you like. What, what can we do? Yeah. So 
and it's it's not even just the, what we think of in the context of mental illness, the formally diagnosed um, or the labels. It's it's the people who are struggling in their relationships, the finances, when they're in that kind of emotional pain, what do they do with it? If they've lost a child, they've lost someone close to them, what do they do with it? Because we finally understand that there is no like faucet on a sink that turns off when you walk into your place of work. Your, your, your home life is carried in to some degree. And a lot of people are having a hard time focusing on work because they're renting out their headspace to other problems, whether it's with themselves or others. And here's the number one thing that I'm seeing. More and more managers or leaders are understanding that it doesn't work anymore to tell people to put their head down and just get back to work after a loss. And he here's a prime example. So last week, I live in Saskatoon. It's a city of, I don't know, 330,000 people. So the city of Saskatoon lost a young man who's 38 years old to suicide. He was the father of two. And he worked with roadways. So we have lots of snow here. They go out and they plow the roads. The manager made a great decision and realized that this is affecting the whole crew, everyone. They can't just get back to work because they're going to be by themselves thinking about this. So what did they do? They called me and I showed up and I led a talking circle. I brought a talking stick. So, you know, we created a safe space where people could get together and they were mostly men where they could talk about their feelings. So meanwhile, all the trucks, all the graders are left in the parking lot, turned off. And they paid you know, for that time because they understood that these individuals have to be free from what they're carrying or it's gonna become problematic. And it was so beautiful. You know, it's, it's hard to be vulnerable in that setting, in your place of work. Will I be judged? Will I be seen as weak? But when more and more people talk about it, that's how we create this new culture. That's how we change things. Because in a circle, three things happen. Everybody is seen, everybody is heard, and everybody is supported. And after 90 minutes, people could go back to their work feeling better because they got some of that energy and emotion out. And, and they all said, look around. You know, we are brothers, we are sisters. I will be here for you if you need to talk about your pain. And I specifically said, raise your hand right now if you mean that, if you will really listen to someone when they're struggling. And I would say two thirds of that workplace raised their hand. So, you know, these are the little things that I think help change the culture. And it, and it starts with leadership because if they hadn't recognized the importance of that, Everyone would have just gone back to work thinking about that loss. Yeah. Abby, your hands up. Yes, uh, I mean, uh, you asked the question about how best, uh, I mean, I am a safety professional. How are we using this knowledge in our places of work? I think uh, the education on um, mental health has really increased particularly with COVID coming in and a uh, lot of resources have been developed and that are readily available online. 
Um, but in, in reference to myself, I was working in one organization when I was having my issues uh, with my son. And uh, one day I showed up at work and a very good friend saw me that morning and say, oh, uh, how is everything? I said, okay. She looked at me and said, no, you are not okay. And she picked me by my hand and took me to HR and said, this guy is not okay. That was when I was given short-term leave. And then I was on short-term leave for almost four or five months, uh, taking care of this uh, boy while in the, in the hospital hospice, you know? So um, with that awareness, uh, it's just for us. I mean, the way we use it uh, as a safety professional is to make sure you know people you are working with, you know their demeanor, you know everything. And in the morning, when you see them intervene, when you think, when you know that something is not just right, that yeah. intervention may really uh, help a lot and make sure that uh, that person really gets the attention that they desire at that point in time. If not for that, uh, my good friend, but I was using work as a kind of uh, distraction. And then that distraction, and I will resume at work. And uh, I mean, it will look as if uh, I was okay, but I was not okay, okay until that intervention and the HR recognized that. And then they just said, you need to go and take care of your son. You know, So let's all be on the lookout and provide that uh, intervention when we have the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for that, Edward. Yes, I think that we should more we should be more empathetic going forward, especially from leadership. It's not always about the bottom line. Mm -hmm. It's not always about the bottom line. Okay. The people that ensures you achieve the right ROI or the bottom line are the ones that are supposed to be your number one priority. What I've done is that quite apart from having normal uh, two boss talks at work, what I try to do is that I invite um, some psychologists from time to time, every quarter, we have somebody coming from a psychological society in Ghana or wherever to come speak to us. We try to include a lot of mental health resources within our communication. Because when COVID came, one of the things that we did was to uh, deploy the home working strategy. That in itself causes a lot of mental health. Because you sit in your house alone, without, especially those who don't have family alone working by yourself all you see is your computer your television and all of that you get bored at some point so we try to do that and we've signed all the employers compulsorily to the gym you've got to exercise at least twice in a week uh -huh. at least we feel that simple simple things like that would also support them ease off their brain then again workplace stress those who do too much and those who do too little We've tried to balance it so that everybody gets just enough to do so they don't feel too bad. The issue of salaries, I've always argued that money is not the motivation. Money is good, but it's not the motivation because if it is the motivation, those who have made loss of it would relax and won't be making more. You, you can never get satisfied with it. So we've got to have other things that attract us to what we're doing. That makes us human. Open door policies has also improved now where everybody can talk to the right people. But then again, 
issue of integrity and um, confidentiality has further been strengthened because you yeah. wouldn't want to talk about your fears to somebody then the next minute it's out there everybody knows right. so confidentiality has been improved we've done policies around that that everybody can feel confident in themselves that if they have a problem they could walk up to the counselors within their business sometimes speak to them anonymously sometimes go in person if you like so that their voices could be heard because when you hear their side of the story, you are able to encourage them. And by encouraging them, they get the renewed hope to believe again, to be able to do better. So those are the interventions we put across. And then, of course, reading. We share a lot of resources with them as well to read, both in flyers, normal articles, and all of that. So people read to sort of help their psyche and all of that. Those are the basic things that we're trying to do to bring change. These are just wonderful things that you're bringing forward and the fact that you're doing them really just gets me excited. So let me, let me do this and let me just bring in some of the lessons that we've learned from previous authors that have been on our show. For example, Karsten Bush talked a bit about organizations being complex adaptive systems. So we have to look at the whole and that culture is something that emerges from the system. So here's that C word coming out of again. And then last month, we had David Poven to speak about creating influence, understanding work, managing risk, and leading strategic change. And he also believes that safety is a property work in organizations. And I think David's really profound point was, you can do all those cool things, but unless you have yourself as an advocate, safety professional, you've got to kind of like earn that credibility, trust, and have that influence with people. So my question out to anybody is, how do we influence all these complex system work conditions so that an organization is ready and willing to change its cultural perceptions of mental health? What can we do? Yeah, um, you know, I think that as I listen to all the stories and experiences, a lot of the answers lie within that. And I also, I do a lot of work with leaders, right? And what's interesting is this, people today who are working for an organization or a company are actually now wanting their leaders to be vulnerable and authentic. And that's different. And more and more leaders are actually now saying, hey, this is what I've gone through. They're talking about losing someone to suicide they're talking about their own struggles with mental health, maybe not in depth, but even as simple as saying, today is a tough day. If you just do that, that's the permission piece. And that's where vulnerability breeds vulnerability. And I'm also seeing a lot of workplaces where they're empowering the, the people who work there to create their own support groups, where in their own time, they can get people together in a simple way, a circle, to just talk about it, create the spaces where people can be free from it. And, and the other thing is, you know, here there's a lot of talk about EFAP, the Employee Family Assistance Plan, as though that's the be-all, end-all. You know, just, just make the call. Uh, you know, the problem with that is not only is there often a long wait, but you get X amount of sessions, maybe four, maybe six, and then it's often terminated. And that was me as the employee. I finally gave myself permission to be vulnerable and it ended up being um, 
you know, not the greatest experience. And I tried it a few times. And I think that today more organizations are posting the local resources so that people can access them. And, and it is important, I feel, to post the local resources everywhere, in the hallways, online, because I was the guy when I was struggling with my own mental health that in my own way, in my own time, I would make that call. Because I often had a very small window where I was like, okay, I'm ready for help. And it helps when those visuals are posted everywhere. Okay. <clears throat> Anybody else? What can we do? Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point is that we talk a lot about it, but then when you try to find where the help is, it's like a labyrinth, right? It's like yeah. a maze. It's, and um, it, co-workers aren't the people to help get you there. They may be struggling with their own um, issues, right? I know that they did that mental health first aiders course where they'd they'd pick workers to to help out and you know I, I have a professional de degree as a social worker and I thought that was a horrible program it's not up for our co-workers to be mental health people in the workplace what we need is is people knowing you know hey yeah you're struggling well here here's the number that you can phone or you go to somebody specific, maybe in HR or health and safety, who has that kind of training as well. Because the worst thing is when you need help, and then people are, are with good intentions are trying to help, but they don't really know how to help, because that can in fact make it worse, especially if it's somebody suicidal. Yeah. Yeah, good point. You know, and we're facing labor shortages all around the world in all areas. And not that long ago, we talked a bit about our own, um, our safety health um, professional, our industry, and there's lots of, of empty spots. So if you put your hand up for help, is somebody going to answer that? That's, that's one of the big concerns I, I do have. Okay. Is there anybody else out there on the in the that have joined us that um, have not spoken and maybe want to get some some of your messages in before, in the last five minutes or so? Uh, your, your chance to do so. If you want to um, speak up, please do so. Okay. Nope. Yeah. All right. Okay. I think one of the things that you talked about, um, Alan, which I thought was cool was that um, the safety of work, if I can use that word, is a complex problem. And team-based problem solving will create more effective solutions. So don't feel that you have to do that as, as, as a one-on-one or individuals, but sometimes a team yeah, helps. And I've seen wonderful examples where you've done that, where you get into these talking circles in these groups. And the whole fact that you're, I think what's happening is that you're, you're feeling psychologically safe because you're including the group, but more than that, you're being heard, you're being validated. And how often we could say, as you say, Robert, we can start the conversation or so, but if nobody is listening, and it's one of the things I had to do when I was a young manager is that, of course, I had to get over the ideas that somebody's got a problem, I gotta fix that person, right? Get over that. And the second thing is I had to do was felt that, okay, I need to counsel 
or advise them, because I guess that's what I do as a manager. I was later said, no, Gary, all you have to do once he starts to talk, all that you have to do is listen. And that will be do so much for, to just help him there. And we have folks like Edgar Schein that talks about that with his humble inquiry and how do we, how do, we do active listening? So a couple of communication skills that I think, correct me wrong, I think we can all get better at. You know what's interesting, Gary? Because you're so right. You know, it's it's people who are in a position of leadership, managers, whatever, they are often in that position because they're good at problem solving, at fixing things. But yeah, it's not our job to fix someone. Uh, and you you say it beautifully, just just listen. It's so easy to say and it's hard to do because a lot of people listen to respond, they don't listen to listen. And Here's a question for everyone tuning in. Put a number in the chat box to what percentage of people you think are active listeners, people who are really good at listening, like generalizing here, but on a scale zero to 100, what, what percentage of people are really good at listening? See what we get. Yeah, put a number 2%. in. 2%. 1%. <laughs> yeah. Bob's got 10. Okay. Anybody else? 10. Okay. Five. All right. See, now just let that sink in for a moment. Because if we understand that all that we want is to be heard, but so few people take the time to listen, that right there is one of the biggest problems, right? Yeah. Yeah, really good point. You know, I, and one of the things I have to always catch myself, you know, when you always ask your question, so Gary, if you could fix something in your life, what would you fix? Number one on my list is I got to learn how to listen better. And one of the things I have to do is that when I'm having a conversation with somebody, and it, maybe it's a debate even, I'm really not listening to the person because I'm formulating my response to whatever he said to get my point across, right? And I find I got to stop do that. And I got to be able to really tactically listen to what that person said before I can speak. So that's something I'm always working on. Everybody loves you, but you know. Oh, somebody is, got, okay. Um, well, we're at the top of the hour anyway. So um, Alan, um, what would be your three takeaways? We covered a lot today. What would be your three takeaways that you would like to leave the viewers? Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to create this space and for inviting me to have this conversation. I learned a lot as I always do. And I appreciate each and every one of you for taking the time to join. The short and sweet, I think uh, number one would be to use your voice in times of need. You know, there, there's so much power in finding our voice. I feel as though I used to just wait for people to help me or I would think that they would know what I needed. No, I have learned the importance of communicating that. And um, also, you know, just to take the time to listen, not fix is, is a huge takeaway. And perhaps the last, you know, when, when we know better, we do better. Sometimes we beat ourselves up, uh, but I think that even in this conversation, I've learned a lot and now we take these tools back to our place of work, back to our homes. Information is power. 
I read in the chat a few times, action, action, you know, and, that, and I totally agree. That's what's needed. We, we can talk and talk and talk and talking is good. Uh, but I think, yeah, let's start seeing this now implemented in our workplaces and society. Yeah, great. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for joining us and back over to you tomorrow. Well, that was an amazing conversation. So I know that we're at the top of the hour, so I'll close this up quickly. Thank you, Alan, for taking the time out of your busy day to join us and talk about your book and share your knowledge with us. And thank you everybody in our audience for coming today and being here without you, we wouldn't even have a show. So this is great. And thank you again, Gary, for hosting a wonderful Meet the Author. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, all. Bye. 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 Bye.